Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Tomorrow is going to mark the end of the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Of course, this year's conference comes amid a very unique set of circumstances, most especially Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, which has had a disruptive uh, effect, obviously, and impact on the global energy and, and food security, attributed to soaring inflation. Also, the notable deterioration in relations between the largest emitters of greenhouse gases, the United States and China, the latter of which continues to have uh, economic growth compromised by its zero COVID policy, which is depressing both demand for energy and having a depressing impact as well on price conditions, uh, which could change quite dramatically next year in both cases. And while this was meant to be the implementation cop, if you will, to sort of practically build on the ambitions of, of COP26 uh, and to ensure the integrity of corporate z- net, net zero pledges. Um, uh, given that this year is the first COP since 2016 to take place in Africa, uh, attention has also naturally turned to the impact on those countries that have done the least to cause climate change, but are certainly likely to suffer the greatest consequences, both economic and humanitarian. And that, of course, led to the controversial topic of loss and damage, uh, which was also a dominant theme at this year's conference, particularly in week one. And perhaps perhaps most sobering of all, uh, a week before COP started, the United Nations Environment Program issued a new report saying that there was, quote, no credible pathway to limiting global temperature increases to that all important one and a half degrees Celsius. So here today to discuss this year's COP, the takeaways and what it means for corporate actors, I'm joined by two experts uh, in their respective fields. Ida Heidenmark-Cook was the Chief Sustainability Officer for IKEA, uh, where she led the uh, development and implementation of the IKEA People and Planet Positive Strategy, developing circular business models, including take-back offers, leasing, and secondhand, and launching new sustainable offers such as selling solar panels in 14 markets. During her tenure, IKEA ranked in the top three uh, most sustainable brands globally, managed to decouple CO2 emissions from its commercial growth. Today, in addition to a number of non-executive board roles, Pia is a Taneo senior advisor, and she works with our ESG and sustainability teams, and she joins us today uh, from Sweden. Philip Cornell is Principal for Energy and Sustainability at Economist Impact. He's a non-resident senior fellow at the the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, where, uh, among other things, he focuses on sustainable energy transition policy and uh, critical energy uh, infrastructure protection. Previously, he was a senior corporate planning officer and advisor to the chairman and CEO of Saudi Aramco uh, and a special advisor to the executive director of the International Energy Agency, the IEA, and he joins today from Washington, D.C. So thank you both um, for for joining. And Philip, I'd like to start with you, I think, here, considering you've just returned from Charm, um, and um, uh, give us your impressions uh, of COP27. Um, what was your experience there this year, and, and, and uh, what were the highlights? Sure. Well, first, thanks a lot for having me here, Kevin. Uh, it's great to join you and to talk a little bit about this COP. Um, I think sort of, as you mentioned, you know, this came on the heels of COP26 uh, last year, where we saw really a raft of 
pledges on the part of both companies and corporations toward net zero. And so, you know, we're looking forward to, to, to this was supposed to be the beginning of this decade of implementation. And that was certainly the theme uh, of COP27, um, coupled with the fact, you know, that this was held in Africa. Um, and so as we think about implementing, you know, what we need to do to get to those, those pledges and fulfill the ambitions that were set out in COP26, I think now both companies and countries are starting to come to grips with the costs that are going to be required, um, particularly upfront costs to achieve the energy transition. Um, and given that this is being held in Africa, how those costs are balanced was really a major theme. Um, so this issue of equity, uh, both across rich countries and developing countries in terms of who should bear the cost burden uh, was certainly an issue. But I think that there was also you know, a greater, uh, th that concept goes beyond just countries, also to within societies. So this question that as we sort of, uh, 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 those costs become apparent, uh, particularly in the context of, as you mentioned, an energy crisis, uh, inflation that's driving uh, a cost of living crisis in many countries, this issue of extra costs, which might be associated with energy transition, uh, even if the current inflation and crisis isn't a direct result of those policies, uh, it still reflects what can happen uh, if uh, if we mismanage uh, the amount of investment that might have to happen, for example, in traditional energy sources versus uh, uh, advanced or, or new alternative energy sources. Um, and so that question of who pays is not just one among countries, but also within societies uh, and thinking about, okay, you know, who, who, who needs to bear the cost burden uh, and over what kind of period of time. So, you know, a lot of the conversations that we heard and econ the Economist and Economist Impact uh, were, as you mentioned, present at COP uh, for the first week with a series of events and also meetings. We had a lot of talk with our clients and with partners, both uh, public sector and private sector. This issue of equity uh, kept kept coming up. Um, and also because it was themed about Africa, there was also this issue of adaptation. Um, so as you mentioned, there's a recognition that the window, at least on the more ambitious 1.5 degree target uh, of, of warming above pre-industrial levels is closing. And indeed, you know, at The Economist, our issue, our climate issue was released last week to coincide with the opening of COP, uh, made a similar argument that in fact, 1.5 degrees uh, is, 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 looks unachievable at this point, um, which you know, doesn't mean that we need to take our eyes off the ball of mitigation, but it means that we need to start to recognize what are the impacts, how to deal with adaptation. And that's really you know, about how we uh, 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 pay for and deal with the results of, of climate change, which are already being felt around the world. And that was really a message that we heard from African colleagues over and over again, uh, you know, particularly in places like the agriculture sector, uh, which accounts for something like 50% uh, of the African labor force. So with each small increase in temperature, uh, already you see very significant impacts, particularly on smallhold farmers that are uh, really, you know, at the mercy of uh, weather changes and weather pattern changes. So this issue of adaptation really came up. And in fact, you know, when we saw the World Leaders Summit uh, at the beginning of last week, uh, there was the release of the Sharm El Sheikh uh, adaptation agenda, which was really moving adaptation to the front and center uh, of the UNFCC uh, agenda and, and the national agenda. So I think that that was that was a big that was a big issue. Um, and I think the second theme 
beyond equity that we really saw over and over again was on the corporate side. So as I mentioned, you know, a lot of these companies uh, made very significant net zero pledges and then are now confronted with how to actually get there. Um, there has been a big interest, obviously, for the past couple of years in ESG, environmental, social, and governance aspects uh, in terms of determining corporate value. And there was, particularly at the time that these pledges were being made, you know, sort of a, an understanding that not only was this the right thing to do, but there, there was opportunity in this transition towards uh, sustainable corporate practices. Um, and I think now the focus is on, okay, how do we actually recognize, uh, conceive of, and potentially measure what that potential corporate value creation really is, even if it's over a long period of time, um, uh, which might be beyond, let's say, traditional measures uh, of shareholder returns, but still trying to figure out how do we move it from a sort of very conceptual idea of value creation uh, uh, and, and a lot of talk uh, to something where we can actually uh, measure this and integrate it uh, with established corporate practices. Um, so, you know, within companies, there was a lot of talk about how you move the strategy from, let's say, the chief marketing officer, where it might, where it might have sat uh, 10 years ago, uh, through to the creation of new chief sustainability officers, which have proliferated uh, over the last five to 10 years, but have very different roles depending on the organization, to, uh, let's say, concrete corporate planning uh, under, for example, the, corp the, the CFO and the CEO. So all these questions about how do you move it to the center of, of, of corporate planning and accounting um, and how that actually plays through uh, to, to sustainable finance. So, you know, at COP27, for example, we also saw the release uh, from the uh, ISSB, which is the International Sustainable Standards Board, which was sort of created to, uh, at, at, last, at the last COP, at COP26 in Glasgow, to consolidate a lot of the reporting frameworks that companies have to contend with uh, when they think about uh, sustainability initiatives. So I think those two sides, the equity side and adaptation that's linked to the fact that it was in Africa, and also this uh, uh, corporate approach and how we actually put meat on the bones of implementation on the corporate side, which I'm also really looking forward to hear uh, what my colleague Pia has to say about this. Yeah, great, Thank, thanks for that. I mean, um, and we'll bring Pia into this conversation in a moment, particularly unpack um, on this corporate front, but I wanted to ask you just a couple of follow-up questions, if I may. One is, you know, I'm gonna betray the fact that the preponderance of our, you know, most of our audience is, is, is US-based. I'm sitting here in New York, of course, and I know when you go to any kind of a conference along these lines, it's, it obviously feels like you're in the center of the universe, but of course, this year, this came in the middle of the U.S. midterm elections. We've got the G20 this week. We've got the ongoing news coming out of the war, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of in the absence of, unlike, say, COP26, where you had some of these very big announcements and pledges and, and whatnot, this was a little bit more, you know, it, it was a little bit less with these big announcements. And as a result, the event kind of got relegated to some degree to back pages and, you know, later minutes in, in news broadcasts. What was, the, well, what was the mood there? I mean, considering some of these sobering assessments that came out right before um, and, 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 you know, and the backtracking that has been caused by the war um, and by the ongoing impact of the pandemic and the like, what was the general mood um, of, the, of the delegates and, and, and participants? Sure. Well, I mean, as you said, going into this COP, there, you know, I think COPs in general <laughs> that go from year to year are sort of 
um, a, a, the, the outcomes are sort of a function of where it sits uh, in the UNFCCC agenda, as well as what is the surrounding uh, economic and, and, and environment and the discussion that's going on around climate. So I think going into this one, as you mentioned, especially coming off the heels of COP26, which was significant in terms of updating countries' uh, nationally determined contributions, so their pledges uh, to make climate change, uh, how they were going to make uh, sort of implement climate change uh, agenda. Um, I think we expected that this was going to be quieter on that sort of official front. We, as you mentioned, we didn't expect uh, some of the big uh, uh, pledges. But the fact that we're in the middle uh, of a serious energy crisis and uh, on the cusp uh, of a recession, at least in a lot of developed world countries uh, going into 2023, uh, and that that uh, the that the impacts of that crisis are being felt around the world, particularly in developing countries, uh, you know, where access to, uh, let's say, liquefied natural gas is being siphoned to 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 Europe to meet uh, demand short or supply shortfall there as a result of Russia. Uh, this is really being felt around the world. And so that question of how this is impacting the developing world how we need to think about financing to advance transition in the developing world, and how we need to think about, uh, as I return to this question about equity, how uh, that sort of adaptation side of things are also financed, uh, and, the, and what is the support of richer countries was really a recurring theme. Um, so, you know, we saw that very much uh, uh, in terms of the reaction to a lot of uh, developed countries' uh, leaders who were there, particularly in the first week. And as you mentioned, because there were midterm elections going on, uh, you know, President Biden only uh, showed up at the end of the week after after the midterms uh, were, were over and, you know, arrived touting rightfully a lot of the legislative victories that have happened in the U.S. Uh, over the past year, and particularly the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, which, uh, you know, gives something like $400 billion to clean energy. It's one of the largest clean energy packages uh, in American history and really incentivizes, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, scaling of things like hydrogen, uh, clean transport, uh, carbon capture, utilization and storage, and a whole host of clean energy technologies. But when he arrived uh, to, to, to make that uh, announcement, there was, you know, a lot of frustration and anger at the lack of progress or lack of announcements uh, from the U.S. and other developed countries regarding transfer of finance to developing countries uh, to, to deal with uh, the impacts of climate change or to the cost of energy crisis, which is hitting some of the poorest people in some of the poorest countries the hardest. So I think that ramping up fossil fuel use in the context of crisis in Europe, so turning on coal plants, siphoning in more uh, liquefied natural gas, talking about major investments, at least in the short to medium term in fossil fuel, uh, the hypocrisy of pursuing that while they have consistently uh, been discouraging fossil fuel investments in developing countries to fuel their industrialization or development. That was an ongoing sort of under underlying feeling, I think, uh, around a lot of the COP. So uh, th th these issues of equity were really front and center. Okay, so we're gonna, I want to turn to Pia here in just one moment, but you've been dancing around a subject here um, in a lot of your commentary. I want to I, I turn to it because I think it also may need for the layperson a little bit of a, 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 little bit of a description um, and explanation. And that is um, this concept of loss and damage. 
uh, and the demands and the arguments that were made about that at at COP, and frankly, in the in the broader discussion um, on the on on the climate and, and energy transition issue. So maybe Phil, can you just spell it out a little bit for us, um, and and for those who are less familiar with the concept, and then you know where where that went, um, and what ideas are actually on the table as far as loss and damage. Sure. So the concept of loss and damage has been around uh, for a while. I mean, at least you know since the Paris Agreement and before. <clears throat> and really, what it's referring to is the liability of rich countries or those countries that have already been the source uh, of emissions over the past century and over the course of industrialization that have led to climate change such as it is now, their liability to countries that are feeling the effects of that climate change. Um, and so while this has been sort of touted uh, for many years, this was the first year that it was brought front and center into the negotiations and proposed that official uh, con concepts of liability, uh, payment uh, schedules and payment uh, uh, the, the size of payments be sort of officially integrated into into the COP process, um, and this was pushed, you know, obviously from a lot of developing countries, but found a lot of uh, sympathy and support uh, among a cadre of developed countries, uh, particularly uh, in continental Europe, and so we saw, you know, significant or we saw pledges. The fact that they made pledges was significant, even if the dollar amounts weren't massive from uh, a lot of continental uh, European countries, uh, thinking about countries like Austria and others um, who, who, who sort of took uh, the side that this is, that this is uh, relevant. But there's a lot of uh, resistance, and I would say notably from countries like the US and the UK uh, to the idea of officially uh, granting or, or, or admitting to that kind of liability. And I think that this plays into a, a longer or sort of a wider uh, movement that we're seeing uh, about liability to polluters for climate change, which is not just at the national level, um, but is sort of slowly becoming a reality in several jurisdictions. Notably, uh, last year in a Dutch court case uh, against Shell, uh, there was sort of a number that was actually put on uh, to, uh, uh, in terms of liability, that is required by that company for the climate change that it's caused in the past. So this is part of a much larger trend um, that's starting to point to polluters and, and historical polluters uh, and really hold them accountable in a financial sense. But you can see why uh, the sort of breaching of that concept uh, can lead down a, a long road of potentially expensive liability, which is why, at least in the conceptual moment now, you saw resistance from uh, some of the some of the largest polluters, and that was, you know, recognized. Uh, I think at the conference, and I mentioned sort of the reaction to to President Biden, uh, but similarly uh, to to the British Prime Minister, you know that that this uh, skirting around that issue was one um, that couldn't that, that that couldn't continue, uh, given how central it is to the conversation today. So, Pia, you know. Before we turn to the ramifications for for the corporate sector, um, I'd love to hear your your reaction to what I know you weren't at Charm yourself, but clearly you're uh, you've been observing from um, uh, from where you sit. And and indeed, you know, just sort of picking up on what Philip was talking about, you sit in Europe. It's been amazing after all of the battles over the taxonomy for dealing with the uh, energy transition and sustainability over the last several years. So. 
how quickly uh, certain energy types suddenly became green very quickly this uh, this year, and how uh, those squares are being circled. But what are your what were your sort of observations and 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 takeaways um, uh, from from this year's COP, or, or or any reaction you have to what Philip's just laid out there? <clears throat> no, thank you, thank you, Kevin, and, and uh, happy to be here. And um, just to add a bit to what Philip said, um, because I fully agree with everything that um, I think one thing, uh, much fewer CEOs uh, at uh, this COP than last year, uh, but still quite a lot of practitioners, so CSOs. So I think there's this discussion around uh, I mean, COP is there for negotiations and, and for policy uh, and, and for us to kind of multilaterally agree between countries. But it's also ended up being this kind of uh, showcase and, and the kind of corporate event. Uh, and less so, of course, uh, this year than in Glasgow, but still a lot, um, with also a lot of uh, kind of anti-climate anti lobby being, being in the room. So just a reflection on who's there, why are they there, and what's the outcome of all the side events. Um, so, so that's one reflection. Uh, the other one is, again, more on the corporate side, but the consequences of all this. So if it's a good cop or a bad cop, um, and, 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 and of course a good cop is if we, we get agreements and we move forward. That is uh in a way maybe harder for some companies because again you sit with even more legislation and policy coming on the other hand you also get a clearer playing field because i think the what we saw with inflation and the stock market in the last few months i mean uncertainty is the worst so the more we're kind of going back and forward and not really knowing uh what's the framework that i need to act within it's harder for companies so i'm hoping that you know there's still a few hours left of negotiation, that we will get something out there. Uh, and then from a corporate perspective, of course, th there are opportunities and, of course, the risks and costs, uh, both in adaptation and in, in mitigation. But overall, we, we need to still focus on mitigation. And, and that, of course, a lot of companies have committed to net zero by 2050 or hopefully uh, 2040 and earlier. Um, so no matter if we feel that the 1.5 degree, and I need to stress, it's not a goal, it's a limit where we have said that for for life on Earth to be as little uncomfortable as possible for us as human beings, uh, 1.5 is the wished limit that we want to stay at. And a lot of com companies have made commitments according to that, and, and, and those remain. Um, so I think there's still we need to still work towards that um, as companies and as the corporate sector. Yeah, just going back to something you said a moment ago, I wanted to pick at this a little bit. What did it tell you? I mean, on the, on the one hand, you mentioned there were fewer CEOs there, um, and they sent uh, their proxies, more of the CSOs or, or what have you there. What did that tell you? But also, my understanding is, is that um, Compared to previous COPs, the um, uh, the sort of the hydrocarbons lobby was more heavily represented um, at this one. Um, certain activists like Greta Thunberg decided not to attend. Um, basically, you know, an implicit criticism of, uh, of of what COP had become. What? Do you, how do you interpret all of, all of that? The who was there, who wasn't there um, element. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Kevin. I mean, I, I believe in dialogue and I believe that the only way to move forward is that we actually do come to the table and we need to find ways of, um, you know, deep listening and really understanding where the other side comes from. Uh, I, I can fully understand uh, Greta from where she comes from. Um, it, it is a bit worrying when it's becoming more of a corporate event uh, to show off what we're doing or you know closing corporate deals and so it's the you know it's the place to be uh, if you want to meet your peers and, and close corporate deals it is a bit unfortunate because that's not what it's intended for it is you know for company countries to meet uh, and and agree and move uh, the global agenda forward but on the other hand to go back to the, the early cops where it was just ministers um, and officials and, and, and only about policy and not the corporate world is not the way to go either because we cannot achieve 1.5 without the corporate sector I mean that's where the most money is um, and, and, and the kind of economic power sits in the corporate world but also the reason why we have climate change is because companies are producing things uh, using you know oil and gas to produce things that we can use so we need the corporate sector at the table uh, both in terms of they are part of the problem they need to be accountable for what they are producing but also to help show the way forward so i think those ceos and cso's that were there uh, despite everything going on at home i mean they're, they're, they're super busy doing other things than the climate change right now does show that this is a corporate c-suite topic and you need to address it uh, and we need a way forward. So I think it's, it is important that we're there showing that, you know, we made a commitment, we are working with implementation. It is very difficult. I mean, the whole equity cost question is a dilemma also within the company uh, with the, the kind of dilemma of short-termism and, and more mid to long-term uh, decisions. So, so I think it is really important that we have the corporate sector there. So on this point, though, so, you know, we've, we're in a situation now where, um, you know, fully a third of the 2000 largest companies in terms of revenue around the world um, have uh, have publicly stated net zero goals. Um, but, you know, over 90 percent of them um, are not on track to actually to actually meet them. And here we are in in a world now uh, where, you know, we're facing rising rates. Um, you know, inflation, basically the era of free money is coming to an end. Um, and, you know, the sort of the house money that everybody was playing with, with a, with a uh, rocketing stock market, you know, those days are coming to an end. It's going to be, and, and, and as, you know, Philip pointed out, I mean, there's, there's upfront cost associated uh, with all of this. So, you know, how do we, how do we deal with this? And I want to get to the specifics of Ikea in a moment, but I know there's certain unique elements of that that make that, um, a great example, but not a great example in many ways, but just in, in, in general terms, you know, how do we get companies to implement uh, and keep the commitments that they have, uh, that they've been making over these years in this more challenging environment for them? Yeah, I mean, we've had it easy. I mean, uh, I was talking to some CEOs that were in their early 30s a few uh, weeks ago, and, and you realize that more or less their entire adult life, it's been relatively easy in terms of war and peace and in terms of access to money and, and so we definitely it's going to be harder uh, but 
once you've made a decision, and I think that is a key thing, that as long as we see sustainability or you know net zero as a nice to have, and I do it when I can afford it, and if I if it's good for my purpose and, and my brand, otherwise I'll do other things, then you end up in that dilemma. But once you kind of fully committed as an organization and it's part of your business planning, it's part of what you do, then you just need to find the way forward. And I think a lot of companies have made commitments in the last two, three years um, without maybe fully understanding the roadmap for how to get to net zero and are now, unfortunately, then in this kind of crunch time when access to capital is harder, and realizing that it actually means changing business models, it means changing potentially the products you're selling, the way you do your business. And it's a lot of hard work. Uh, and then you kind of need that kind of settling and reflecting on, okay, this is not going to be an easy journey, but it's a thing we have to do. And I think there is something, uh, let's see if I get the quote right, but uh, you know, my husband is Canadian, so I have these kind of hockey quotes, but Jane, Wayne Gretzky said that, you know, go where the puck is going. And we kind of know uh, for certainty that we're not getting less climate change. So by waiting, you'll just get more policy, more legislation, more fines, more lawsuits. So a general rule is maybe you don't want to be the first one and, you know, be ahead of the pack by too far, but you also don't want to be the laggard where you're so out of date with all the demands that are going to come from employees, from customers, from legislators, from investors. So kind of need to just get in there, be pragmatic and really reflect on what are the things we can do short term? What are the things that will, you know, we'll maybe have to wait a bit and do in five, 10 years, but it's making that plan and getting it into your business plan and being serious about it. This is about management, you know, Setting your goals, following up on your goals, assuring your goals. And it is about leadership, being clear. We have decided, we are sticking to this. It's going to be maybe much harder than we thought, but we have to do it. And Kevin, maybe maybe I can just follow up on that a little bit, because um, Pia has said some really great things, I think, both about the private sector at COP and, and the imperative for private sector organizations. You know, I, I, I think she's exactly right that, you know, this is not just uh, about sort of confronting um, potential risks, or maybe it's a, it's, it's a nice have. It's about sort of the imperative for companies to address potential risks in their in their business and in the wider economic environment um, that, that are also associated with, let's say, climate change in terms of the effects of climate change on their portfolio, uh, which is why, you know, this has been led by very large uh, asset owners and managers over the past couple of years um, that have really pushed this forward and, and, and put pressure on boards within their portfolio companies to move forward. So, I mean, it's a it's a real calculation of, of effects on their portfolio, but also I would say both at a country level and at a company level, Germany today, we're seeing a raft of bankruptcies that are caused directly as a result of very high energy inputs. And in fact, those companies that had engaged in, let's say more renewable energy or energy efficiency were actually better uh, cushioned against the effects of crisis. So we're seeing that it's not just, you know, about sort of, uh, a, a, a wide esoteric benefit over a very long term, but there's a concrete impact uh, on business. And, you know, I think that if we look to sort of the role of, of companies at COP, 
um, particularly what drove them to make such big ambitious commitments ahead of Glasgow last year, um, that was a big part of, of the puzzle. And, you know, uh, I, I would point also on the financial side uh, where you saw uh, some very large financial alliances like uh, the, 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 the GFANS, which is the Global Financial Alliance on, on Net Zero, or things like the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which represent enormous institutions. I mean, $130 trillion in assets, things like that, um, which, which look like a lot. But again, when they come to somewhere like COP, there is this, I think, uh, lingering suspicion of greenwashing. And there is, continues to be, you know, trying to uh, see concretely what those alliances are doing. And so at this COP, I think that was, that happened again, where, you know, there was, uh, for example, a, a report from Share Action that said, well, something like 80% of the Net Zero Banking Alliance members have one sector specific target. Very few of them have set interim targets that cover, uh, you know, financed emissions in all sectors. So there's a lot, even though they represent a lot of money, we have to look at what actually is being spent and how uh, tight are the uh, measures and how strict are the measures that they have for stopping their members from bankrolling uh, companies that are linked to uh, emissions or to things like deforestation. So um, there is, I think, even though we're seeing a lot more corporate action and corporate representation at the COPs, uh, there is, a, I think, a, uh, the danger or the risk that this becomes something like a trade show uh, and sidelines, uh, particularly some of the most important stakeholders uh, on the civil society and activism side, uh, that that might feel that this is, you know, corporate uh, representation is 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 drowning out their voice. Even though, as Pia said, the money has to come from the private sector. I mean, John Kerry made a comment that no government uh, has the kind of cash that's necessary or the resources to solve the energy. Uh, transition or climate crisis alone. And so we need to think about real ways to incentivize and motivate uh, private sector financing around these issues. So just going back to what both of you have now just been talking about, it sort of begs the question of, of ESG, right? And I don't want to go too far down this, the, this rabbit hole, it's a subject matter all unto itself, but clearly uh, ESG, which has been the sort of a buzzword of the last several years, has been under some degree of attack, partially because of the changing market and economic conditions that uh, that companies and managements and boards are going to be facing for the first time in a long time. But also this sort of, um, um, th that's one bug, one element. The second element is this, this perhaps, you know, kind of ESG 2.0 kind of concept that perhaps the elements of ESG need to sort of be more disaggregated. Some are more uh, easily quantified or objective. Um, others are, are, are tougher. And then a third, of course, is the pushback against ESG. I mean, you know, quite frankly, here in the United States, Republicans have just taken control of the House. They're going to have investigatory power now. We know that there has been pushback on the likes of people like Larry Fink at BlackRock who have been pushing for an ESG uh, agenda. And there's this kind of pushback on wokeism, if you will. Um, how, do you, how did that, how is that playing out at, at, at COP specifically on this concept of of ESG and where we're going to go, and I'd love to hear Pia's take on this um, uh, as as well. But maybe if there were some initial observations you had from from Charm itself, Philip. Sure. Um, well, I think that's exactly right. That there's you know a feeling of political pressure, particularly in a few American states uh, that have made you know very concrete uh, uh, 
punishments or consequences for companies that uh, seem to disfavor, let's say, one kind of energy source or another. Um, but you know, overall, I think the commitment remains there. Um, when you talk about disaggregating, sure, I think there's a lot of talk that says you know the, the climate aspect of the E, the environmental, and particularly carbon emissions, are sort of in a different category than the rest because you know they're relatively relatively easily measurable. Um, we can sort of uh, fall under the, the same frameworks and how we account for those uh, emissions. Uh, there's been a lot of progress uh, also on the technical side uh, in terms of creating more transparency within value chains and among suppliers. So there is a real sort of concrete element to this, whereas on the S and even on the G, um, we see a lot more sort of regional variation, interpretation of what is uh, good social practice uh, or what is good governance uh, in a company. Um, but you know, either way, companies have to deal with this because their shareholders demand it, right? So as companies go into proxy season, we can see the amount of sort of shareholder activism or shareholder proposals around these different issues. And, and again, they're not going away. In fact, last year, you know, the, the Economist, Economist Impact, we've uh, done some study on looking at those uh, proxy seasons. And we see that particularly on the S side, you know, a big uptick in the last couple of years. Now, are those focused in, let's say, West Coast technology companies where perhaps, you know, shareholders and, and, and employees uh, uh, might embrace more of, you know, sort of what you call the woke uh, side of the spectrum, perhaps. Um, but, you know, all around the world, we're seeing companies that are under pressure um, uh, from their boards and from their shareholders to address this. So I don't think it's going away because it's not something that's being imposed from the top down. It's really something that we're seeing an appetite for uh, from consumers, from stakeholders, from employees and from shareholders. It just might look different in different parts of the world. Yeah, Pia, I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, no, so many reflections uh, worth out which, where to start. Um, I think one thing with everything going on is uh, we still do live in an open world uh, where we are interdependent on each other. So no matter what happens in the US, there also happens a lot of things in Europe, a lot of things in Asia, and most companies or large companies are you know, multinationals. So they are impacted with the changes in the EU taxonomy and upcoming uh, other legislation in Europe where you you, uh, you have your extended supply chain and you need to look at it no matter if if you're in a state where there's another another opinion right now um so so that's one reflection that it, it is here to stay and and it, you can't just look local you need to just think global um another one is i think it's good that there is some pushback on esg in the sense of we need to become more professional. Uh, there's been too many different guidelines, uh, too many, many different ways of doing things, and we need consistency because it is about measuring and, and following up, and we need to make it easy. It's, it's, you know, from a corporate perspective, crazy when you have, um, you know, 500 different supplier questionnaires, and, and they're all asking kind of the same thing, but a bit different, and you're hiring people to fill in questionnaires. That's not what we want to achieve. I think we need that professionalism. Um, on the other hand, there's also pushback because I think the more successful the climate movement and the activists are, and the, the more you come to the core of the matter, which is we need to change the way we do business, um, 
of course there will be a pushback because uh, you know if, if if you're not successful no one cares what you're doing you can just kind of keep playing in your little corner so i think it's quite natural that that this pushback comes now one from a we need to professionalize but also because some people are worried about what's going on and then my kind of last maybe not so politically correct uh, comment is being european um i find it interesting when people are upset about certain fuel types being disfavored when we have been favoring or disfavoring um renewable energy solar and wind for for decades or at least you know, yeah for decades and that was okay so why is it not okay now when we know that one actually hurts the planet and, and uh, people's livelihoods and the other one actually doesn't to the same extent so you know it's in the eye of the beholder but i find that a bit interesting yeah I, and maybe i can just follow on that because i think this is a this is a really key issue um there's certainly you know, especially in today's political environment in places like the US or the UK, something of a cultural political aspect. But there's also, I think, a real economic question here, um, which is, you know, as we look at the energy transition continuing, uh, again, the risks of simply disinvesting or divesting from what are seen as, you know, quote, um, you know, dirty fuels or, or, or companies that are sort of maligned because of, of what's, uh, you know, because of the fuels maybe that they're working with. Um, in the absence of sufficient scaling of alternatives, uh, the result is potentially, you know, continued uh, crisis and price volatility that really does impact affordability um, in developed countries and developing countries. And I think the risk here is, as, you know, we can already see sort of the deleterious effects of uh, inflation on politics and I think the risk is that if those costs, you know, of the that volatility and price spikes end up falling uh, on individuals, that from a political perspective, we might lose support or get a backlash against the entire transition process. So, you know, while we are trying to continue this transition, the difficult, you know, getting from here to there, there, let's say the future of a net zero economy will be more affordable, will be more secure, will be less exposed to, to, to fuel volatility. It's a better world, but the transition in between here and there risks being messy and the mismatches which are inherent in such a huge orchestration of a shift of the economy are inherently gonna lead to losers and, are, and, are, and is gonna lead to volatility that, that, that impacts people. So that's the role of policy to sort of smooth that transition. But I think just taking it, you know, which, and we hear this line, I heard it at COP, you know, divest from, stop oil now is a big movement in the UK or divesting directly from any fossil fuels. Um, I, I, I think that as we see the product of energy crisis, um, that there has to be a, a, a sort of balanced approach. But the faster we go, the better it'll be for everyone. I think we're definitely- Yeah, I mean, mitigation, sorry, Kevin, but I mean, mitigation is cheaper than adaptation. So, and there's so many reports on that. So. But I agree, uh, you know, it needs to be managed to transition because we don't want, you know, complete social unrest and revolution because then that's not going to be in the favor of anyone. But there's some, there's something in being clear on where we're heading and also painting the picture of how not nice it will be also for those who are kind of feeling like they have something to lose in this new world. We're all going to be impacted, no matter, you know, uh, high income, low income, everyone. And of course, unfortunately, those with the thin wallets are the most impacted. But I think we need to just 
you know, I agree, we can't close everything and just switch tomorrow. But if we had started, and you can't kind of in hindsight, but, you know, IKEA started investing in renewable energy in 2009. Um, it was much more expensive per kilowatt hour than to get the wind and the sun than it is now. But I'm quite sure that by us starting to invest then, put us in a much better place now. Uh, and it also makes us less uh, vulnerable to fluctuating energy prices. And there are other companies, uh, you know, like, like Ersted that just completely changed their model from fossil to renewables. So it is possible, but you need that kind of consistent, this is where we need to go and make a roadmap and, and kind of, yeah, cushion it as much as possible and take care of everyone. But we can't still be debating if we need to do the transition or not, because we have to. So this is a, this is a perfect segue. And, you know, Pia, this is the first time you've been introduced to our, our audience on this. So I have to take advantage of the fact that you're, you're here today to talk a little bit about um, IKEA uh, itself and how you and your colleagues got to that exalted level in terms of, you know, being so highly rated on the sustainability front. Because let's be honest, there's a company that sources stuff from around the world, you're shipping product around the world. And, you know, and honestly, every college kid around the world's dorm room is filled with stuff that they feel is essentially disposable furniture. So how did you get there, essentially? And, and how much of that is, is um, an enlightened foundation representing the, the founding family as opposed to institutional shareholders or, or what have you? How much of that was an impact? And, you know, if I could, you know, now that you're you have stepped away from IKEA and you are advising companies that are not based in Scandinavia and are now and are public companies who are trying to trying who didn't start back in you know uh, the late 90s or early 2000s and are having to catch up from today's starting point how are you advising them really good question Kevin um, I think of course it contributed and helped and made it easier for IKEA to be uh, kind of rooted in, in in Scandinavia with the values of nature and e equality and, and you know that's kind of how IKEA has grown up in its last 75 years so it helped uh, and, and not being listed having the quarterly uh, has also helped on the other hand IKEA is a retailer which means that every product that doesn't get out of the shelf that day is a lost product so uh, you know retail is short term uh, uh, and it is kind of weekly sales figures or daily sales, hourly sales figures. So there's, there is definitely a short-termism in retail, even though you're not a listed company. So I think what maybe was the kind of key thing was culture, um, the kind of corporate culture where uh, cost consciousness is critical as part of the values and has always been, because you can't be for the people with thin wallets without it. And sustainability is a lot about being efficient with resources and being smart. So kind of understanding that, and that comes from the founding, uh, founding you know, Ingvar Kamprad, um, having that understanding, seeing the connection between the two definitely helped. I think also in the culture is this understanding the impact and the responsibility you have when you are a big brand. Uh, so, I mean, IKEA is by no means perfect. There's been lots of issues throughout the history where, um, you know, we, we haven't been perfect. The, the difference sometimes is that we haven't been sending in the corporate PR team to kind of make it look good and fix it. But, you know, they have, of course, done the crisis management, the crisis communication, but there's also been 
operational teams going in saying, okay, we need to really understand what's going on and how can we change and how can we kind of adjust and, and make it better. So I think there's been a lot of those, that genuine wish to, to do good. Uh, and, and that comes to, from the vision of creating a better everyday life for the many people. So there's that genuine in the company. Yes, we sell a lot of disposable furniture, but we're also contributing to people within wallets having a beautiful home, which should be a, you know, for everyone, shouldn't just be for a for few. So I think there's that genuine wish to do good and that has helped. Um, then what we did and what I think companies today maybe have a more challenge is we spend a lot of time on insight, building the case, talking about it, which was harder 10, 15 years ago because no one else talked about it. Um, easier today for companies that are starting today. But the benefit IKEA had was, of course, we, we could make a few mistakes because there were not that many talking about it. And there wasn't that many investors, activists, customers, employees um, shouting for it. Um, so I think companies today, you kind of need to, you need to set the plan or, or, the, or the goals on the plan um, and, and kind of execute it while you're kind of learning. And, and I'm getting that from some of the clients and, and boards I sit on where people are leaning in, maybe more than IKEA started 10, 15 years ago. People, and I mean employees and customers, they want it, but they don't really know what it is. So they're saying, I'm in, I'm with you, but tell me what to do because I, I, you know, my mind is on so many other things. But the sustainability team can't really tell you what to do because we haven't done it before. So we need to do it together. And I think that is, from a corporate perspective and a change management perspective, one of the most difficult things in this is that we've kind of almost ended up in a world where I go to work and I do the things I'm told to do, but we need to think, we need to reflect, we need to be entrepreneurs, innovators, creative thinkers, and challenge, because that's the only way we can make this happen, because we need to paint this world where we're heading, and we need to find all the solutions on getting there without really knowing what it is. And, and, and that is difficult, but I think once you crack it, um, you, you have more fun because, Again, you kind of tap into that creativity that I think we actually like as, as people. And you're, you're, you get that kind of feeling of being part of something that is bigger and better than just kind of here and now and celebrating that the sales results were great. So we have a few minutes left and I want to I want to turn to to both of you on, on a, I, I guess my question here is, is, is there an incentive out there um, for you know, to, to sort of never emphasize the good news um, on on this front, because lest it, it it create a sense of complacency, and then everybody says, okay, we're on the right track, so let's go do let's go focus on something. Because it occurs to me that um, you know, and I think it was actually it was in the Economist itself, Philip, uh, several years ago, former President Obama wrote in in there, and he was you know lamenting the fact that you know climate change sort of happens too slowly um in, in a sense right particularly in a world that's that is guided by quarterly earnings results and a two-year congressional election cycle let's say um in the u.s and in july uh, of just of this year the new york times published a poll that suggested that you know only one percent of voters um saw climate change as the most important issue facing the country and even amongst voters under 30 that number was only three percent 
Um, and yet, you know, there have been some phenomenal strides, which both of you have been talking about here today. And sort of, you know, Pia, I, I mentioned when I was introducing you earlier, you know, that you had decoupled, um, you know, emissions from uh, from from revenue growth at at at, uh, at at IKEA. And indeed, you know, we've got dozens of countries now that have decoupled that have, that have decoupled economic growth from growth in 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 in, in CO two. Uh, emissions and you know every dollar of GDP in richer countries is requiring fewer emissions to 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 produce. So there's been some some really good news. So I guess let, maybe we can end on here on a, on on the high note. But or how do we balance uh, how do we balance that? Uh, yeah, mm, it's a really good question. I I would agree with Obama in the sense that it's. It's one of these big problems that we don't see enough of. And I was just asking my teenage daughter, don't you talk about climate change in school? And of course they do, They, you know, way more than we did when we were in school. But it's still often in the science topic, whereas sustainability and climate, it's, you know, it's social science, it's economics, it's, it's marketing, it's everything. Uh, but we're still kind of talking about it as a science topic and, and I think, talking about it, creating the links, understanding that this is fundamentally about how we build societies and how we build companies. We just need to keep making those links and, and connections. Uh, and I think we're on a good way, but that is not talking just about the, the great stories or all the negative stories. It's really just painting that picture and, and connecting the dots. And I think that's what we need to keep, keep doing um, so, so people see that this is this is about how we choose choose to to live on this planet it, it, it's it's that big um so i think that's uh yeah that's that's the kind of key thing to keep talking about it keep making connections and painting the picture of where we're heading yeah philip i mean is there is there too much negativity out there and a sense of fatalism sort of sets in or you know has you know entrepreneurism and human ingenuity and uh and 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 the right kind of public private partnerships actually you know, um, presenting considerable opportunity. I mean, in some ways, this has got to be considered the biggest business opportunity of all time to get this to get this right, both at a state level and at an individual company uh, level. Yeah. <clears throat> well, first, I, I think you're exactly right that this conversation can lend itself to some pretty morbid, uh, you know, issues of crisis. You know, that the that the planet is dying and. That people are are potentially dying as a result, and and the fact is that it's not decades and decades away. I mean, we're seeing you know uh, famines that are going on in the Horn of Africa today, uh, disasters around the world that certainly have an impact. So I think that there is that kind of mitigating serious risk uh, of 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 what our environment looks like, which is an issue. But I think you know you're also right that crisis fatigue is real, uh, and you know bombarding. Uh, people, constituents, uh, with with constant crisis uh, is not always the most effective. There's huge opportunity uh, in this change. Uh, the biggest, as you said, sort of economic transformation and opportunity, at least since the Industrial Revolution. Again, to quote John Kerry um, uh, from 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 last year. So, uh, what's exciting here, you know, again, are those opportunities that you can find uh, in your business and in your daily life. Uh, as a result of more sustainable activity. Uh, and I'll just, you know, use the case, for example, of local pollution, where transfers away from coal plants uh, have significantly 
uh, lowered, you know, disease and, and expanded life uh, lifespans um, in cities around the world where that transition has happened first to gas in places like Tokyo and London and Europe, but also today uh, as we shut down coal plants in favor of renewable energy because it's simply cheaper. Uh, and so the business opportunity, you know, in things as technology marches forward and as cost curves uh, go down uh, are, are really significant. I mean, renewable energy is just the cheapest greenfield approach to uh, electricity generation uh, in countries that represent over 75% of global GDP at the moment. Uh, those technologies march forward. Another great thing that came out of um, COP27 is we saw really what are the public-private partnerships that you mentioned to spur innovation. Um, and, you know, I'll point, for example, to uh, the First Movers Coalition, for example, that was spearheaded um, uh, by, by, by the U.S. Uh, in conjunction with the World Economic Forum that saw a major expansion uh, in, in, at this COP. And that's really about uh, getting companies on board to pledge to use certain technologies, uh, even at a cost premium. Uh, at the time that they become commercializable, which actually is what spurs continued innovation and investment in those in that technological uh, uh, improvement. So we're seeing a lot of real opportunity here for business. It's not just about risk. It's not just about risk to your portfolio or or, or regulatory risks, although that is real. Uh, you know, society uh, is moving on and government policy is moving on that will create greater incentives for companies. Um, but I think what we have to see here is we are moving to a better place, a place where energy is cheaper, uh, you know, and that's, uh, again, a, a message um, uh, e even in countries like Africa, where they're having to solve an energy access uh, issue. You know, a lot of places where uh, less than 50 percent of the population has access uh, to electricity. Uh, but these kind of technologies and low, low carbon technologies can actually lower the cost uh, uh, increase access, particularly if we think about things like off-grid solar, and also bypass dysfunctional uh, utilities. The problem is just getting there. Uh, and getting there is where we need to be thinking about novel financing approaches and, and continuing to focus on that equity so that at the end of the day, we are in a better world where things are cheaper, cleaner, uh, and, and more secure. Well, I'm always happy to end these calls on a, uh, on a high note. So I want to thank you both for that. And Pia, I have to tell you, I can't tell you, how many uh, of the guests on this show use the um, uh, gate to where the puck is going um, quote. Uh, it's going to become a drinking game probably pretty soon on this <laughs> show. Um, but I have to leave it there. So Philip Cornell and Pia Heidenmark-Cook, thank you so much for your, for your time today. This is going to be an ongoing discussion, obviously, as, um, uh, as we move forward uh, in this uncertain world. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at taneoinsights at taneo.com. See you next time.